I know many of you know this verse by heart. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we bless you and we praise you that you, together with your only begotten Son and the Holy Spirit, first of all, decreed before time began that you would create the world. And we thank you, second of all, that you did it. You are our creator, and we love you for it. And we pray now that you would help us to think through some practical implications of what this means for our lives. Oh, Lord, take this simple truth and knead it into our hearts like leaven into dough until it affects all that we are and all that we do. And use it, we pray, to equip us so that we might bear witness more effectively in this confused world. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we do indeed live in a time of great moral confusion. So it is a time when we face questions that even 20 years ago would not even have been considered. You know, things as basic as, is a man a man and a woman a woman? Just 20 years ago, nobody would have even taken that seriously. And yet today, we live in a situation where to even raise that question is to be accused of harming people and doing them wrong. Now, if you're living in your house and you start to notice cracks, there's a crack over here in this room, and then you go over to the other room and you, you realize that there's also a crack developing over here. It's not just in one part of the house, but there's cracks appearing in multiple places in your home. What do you think you need to check? The foundation. Because if the foundation has been broken or is shifting somehow, it doesn't matter if you kind of patch over a crack here or a crack there. The whole structure is in danger. And that's exactly the position that we're in right now as a society. We are in a society where we are seeing cracks opening up in the most basic issues of life. Things that would have been just no-brainers, like I said, even just a couple of decades ago. And to deal with these things, while we do need to address with, deal with specific issues and to be able to speak to those issues about right and wrong and morality and, and ethics, folks, we need to address the problems in the foundation. This is what Jesus does. In Mark chapter 10, he is being confronted by the Pharisees, and they're, they're asking him about ethical questions, moral questions. They're asking him about divorce, a controversial subject. And in Mark chapter 10, it's fascinating because Christ does not start by immediately answering their question about what he thinks about divorce. Instead, he takes them back to the foundations. He says in Mark 10, verses 6 through 8, 
From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, we notice two things about what the Lord Jesus does in the midst of this moral controversy. First of all, Jesus treats the beginning chapters of Genesis as real history. He does not treat them as if they're just some kind of spiritual fable or a myth that we're supposed to learn some lesson from. Instead, he says, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. He treats them as real historical events. And secondly, we notice that Christ uses those historical events of God creating the world as the foundation for what we should think about things like marriage and divorce and these more specific ethical questions. And as disciples of Christ, as Christians, we should follow Jesus in both ways. We too should regard the opening chapters of Genesis as real historical events. That's the way the Bible presents them. That's the way the New Testament views them. And we should also regard these creation accounts in Genesis as laying a foundation, a foundation that if we don't get this right, it may not matter afterwards, it won't matter afterwards, how nice of a structure we build on top of it. If the foundation is cracked, the building is doomed. And so we need to understand as Christians, as we deal with these swirling controversies, about human sexuality and things like that, that if we're really going to think clearly ourselves, and if we're going to help other people think clearly, we can't just argue about the specific issues. We need to lay a solid foundation, and it begins in Genesis 1.1. So what I would like to do is I would like to just draw some very simple, practical lessons from this verse, the very first verse of the Holy Scriptures. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And frankly, I suspect that the lessons that I'm going to draw out of this are going to be so simple and so basic that you're going to say, yep, I know that, yep, I know that. But then I'm going to try and apply those things in ways that maybe you have never thought about before. So let's begin. The first lesson that we draw from Genesis 1-1 is simply this. God exists and is supreme. God exists. In the beginning, God. Therefore, there is a God, and there has always been a God. You ever notice the Bible never tries to prove that there is a God? It just tells us that there is one and that he's speaking to us. And it declares him to be the creator of all the universe. And indeed, the universe that God has made is his revelation that he is real. Paul says in Romans 1.20, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. 
in the things that have been made. And not only does God exist, but God is central. He is supreme in his creation. He's not just a part of things. He is the great central actor in this drama. If you read through Genesis chapter 1, you will find that the word God appears in almost every verse. It's all about him. God does this. God says that. God arranges this. It's all about God. What is this saying to us? It's saying that behind everything that we can see, everything that we can touch, everything that we can hear with our ears is a great invisible reality. The one who is the cause behind everything in this world, and that is God. The scriptures from beginning to end are full of the glory and the reality of this God. And therefore, God must be central and supreme in the way that we view our lives. Genesis 1.1 implies that we exist for our creator. If he made us, then we are his servants. That's what Psalm 119, verses 90 and 91 say. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. We just sang about that, didn't we? You have established the earth, and it stands fast. By your appointment, they stand this day, listen, for all things are your servants. You know, one of the most basic points of confusion today is people don't know who we are. And right away, Genesis 1-1 reminds us of one thing. It says, we are created by God. We are his creatures, and therefore, we are his servants. Wilhelmus Abrockel, a Dutch theologian, said, By its very existence, the creature is obligated to God's majesty to exist for the purpose of serving God, having its origin in him and existing by virtue of his influence. Theologian Petrus von Maastricht wrote, that the creation invites us to glorify God, for which reason he is said to have created all things for himself. Now, friends, we live in a society that has been profoundly influenced by atheism. And atheists sometimes are very intelligent people. But when they deny God's existence and then try to make sense out of this world and our lives, they're like an astronomer who's trying to describe the solar system while pretending that the sun doesn't exist. Because God is the center and source of all things. And as a result, atheism is not only a denial of God, it's great crime, but it is also a distortion of the way that we view all things. To be atheistic is to view life through one of those silly mirrors that they used to have at the circus or the fair that you look in it and you look twice as wide as you normally are and half as tall. It distorts everything. That's why Paul says in Romans 1.21, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, 
but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And David puts it quite bluntly in Psalm 14.1 when he says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. But you know, we need to recognize that when Paul and David wrote those things, they probably didn't primarily have out-and-out atheists in mind. Because actual atheists are really quite rare in the history of the world. Instead, they're probably thinking about people who, yes, they acknowledge in some sense that there is a God, but they live as if he didn't exist. They are what you might call practical atheists. Now, practical atheism is sadly visible even amongst people who attend church. But it is blatant and in our face in the secularism of our society. Secularism doesn't try to get into whether or not God exists so much as declaring that he is irrelevant to real practical life. Secularism would bar God from the public square and imprison God in the narrow realm of your private religious belief. In other words, it might say to you, it's okay, you know, you can believe what you want to believe about God, but don't start bringing him in to our lives. Don't start bringing him into the rest of reality. Don't be a fanatic. Don't be a religious extremist. This isn't God time. You're not at church. But dear friends, Genesis 1-1 shows us that it's not at all fanaticism or religious extremism to think that all of life is about God. For, as it says in the fourth commandment, in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them. Exodus 20.11. Everything's about God, because everything comes from God. All of life, all of existence is about him. And so the, the secularist is quite wrong to tell us that, that we can give one area of our life to our religion, but God does not belong to the other areas of life. Dear friends, without God, those other areas of life would not even exist. To confine God to one area of life, listen, is to deny that he is God. Therefore, let us not bow to atheism. Let us not bow to secularism when our culture demands that, oh, if you're a Christian, you can still come in, but you have to leave your faith at the door. We are told to keep religion out of science. We are told to keep God out of politics, out of public school, out of the, all public discourse. But dear friends, if we're Christians, we believe in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God exists, and he is supreme. He's not an intruder into our world. He owns the world. Psalm 95 says, 
In his hand are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands form the dry land. Psalm 95, verses 4 and 5. God exists, and he is supreme. It's the first practical, simple lesson from Genesis 1.1. The second is this. There is only one God. Again, this isn't rocket science. I'm not expecting anyone to say, oh, I never thought of that before. But dear friends, that simple truth, there is only one God. Maybe you don't realize this. It is revolutionary stuff. It is dynamite in our world today. But it's clearly what Genesis 1 is teaching us. It is presenting him as one supreme being who created everything that exists. Everything in the universe, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, Genesis 1 is actually a very powerful statement against polytheism. Now, I'm going to use some ism words in this sermon. Don't be frightened by that. I'll tell you what they mean. If you don't get them, that's fine. There won't be a quiz at the end of this sermon. But these are helpful terms to hang ideas on. Polytheism is the idea that there are many gods. Poly and theism. Psalm 96 verse 5 acknowledges that people worship many gods in this world. But listen to what it says about it. All the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. You see, creation establishes that there is only one God. We can't make a God out of the sun, for example, if the sun was created by God. Obviously, the creator is the only God. But this is a revolutionary message in the world. In the ancient world, people commonly believed in many gods, divine spirits or powers, and each one of them made a claim on some part of life. So as I mentioned, there was a god of the sun, a god of the moon, a god of the sea, a god of the mountains, a god of the rivers, a god of the rain and storms, a goddess of love, a goddess of the family, a god of death, and so on. And each nation had its own particular god or gods. In fact, in polytheism, people could become gods, and frankly, the gods acted like people. And you think, well, that's interesting. I, I remember something about that in my mythology class. But what does that have to do with life today? Folks, people haven't changed. People haven't changed. Millions of people throughout the world continue to worship multiple gods. You go to places like India, where Hinduism is prevalent, <clears throat> or other places in the Far East, Taoism, forms of Buddhism. They worship many gods. Native Americans and Africans in their indigenous religions honor many spirits. New Age spirituality would teach us to view ourselves as gods. You say, oh, but we're, we're Americans. We don't believe that kind of stuff. We, we live in a secular society. Well, it's true that in our secular society, people may not use the word gods, but they still have them. 
We still have them. We, we still give our fear and our adoration to things or people that we regard as divine powers. Things that we think that really just controls my happiness. And those things or powers, they demand our allegiance. They demand our obedience, our imitation, and our sacrifices. And that's one reason why there's so much confusion today and so many conflicting claims about what's right and what's wrong. Because people are running off over here and saying, oh, I need to appease this God. And then they're running off over here, I need to appease that God. And so they lead a fragmented life. And against all these claims, the Bible says, in the beginning, God, just one God, created the heavens and the earth. Or as Hezekiah prayed in 2 Kings 19.15, O Lord God, the God of Israel, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. So we must deny our impulse towards idolatry. We must deny our impulse to take some good thing that God has created and to turn it into a deity to be worshipped. And indeed, we must learn the very hard lesson that we are not gods. The Bible actually mocks at the idea that men are gods. It says quite sarcastically in Psalm 82, verses 6 and 7, You are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men you shall die and fall like any prince. All the great men and women of this world who strut around, so proud, so powerful, being worshipped by other people, seen as, oh, I want to be like him or like her. They will be dust in the earth before long, dear friends. And every time sickness, illness, injury, old age, death come into our lives, God is saying to us, you are not God. This is so fundamental, and yet it is, it's so hard for us to get through our heads. We think that I'm, I, I'm strong. I have to be strong. I have to be the one with all power until we're lying in bed and we don't even have the strength to get up. We say to ourselves, I, I have to be the one who knows. Maybe I don't know everything, but I, I need to at least know everything that's important for my life until you find yourself at your wit's end, and you don't have a clue what to do. Or you think that you knew, and you told someone what to do, and disaster came. My friends, we're not gods. We are not gods, and people are not gods. And do you know what that means? Since I'm not God, and you're not God, that means we cannot do whatever is right in our own eyes. We don't get to define what's right and wrong. God does. That belongs to him and to him alone. 
And we need to understand that this God is a particular God. He is a God who is not just a generic deity that all people worship in their own way. No, no, dear friends. The God of Genesis 1, the creator God, is the God of Abraham in Genesis 17. And as we read on the Bible, he's the God of Israel. And later in the Bible, we discover that he is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This creator God in Genesis 1 is a particular God. He is the God of the Bible. And so when people come and say, oh, but, you know, this person's God or that person's God, they're all just worshiping God in their own way. No, no, no. Because the different religions contradict each other. They can't all be true. And if we say that they're all true, then we're actually saying that none of them are true. For instance, obviously it's central to the Christian faith to say that Jesus Christ is God's only begotten Son. Well, according to the Quran of Islam, Allah, or God, has no Son. They consider it wrong to even consider such an idea. Well, dear friends, they both can't be right. They both can't be worshiping the same God. Either he has a son or he doesn't have a son. And when people try and say, oh, but they all worship the same God, you know what they're doing? They're actually saying none of the religions is right. And none of us really know what God is. Well, how helpful is that? Because then none of us really have any guidance from God to know what we ought to do and how we ought to live. No, dear friends, the Bible says that there is one God and one particular God, and therefore we don't have to be running off to appease the, the God of family and running off and try to appease the God of money and running off trying to appease the God of work, each of which has its own set of rules that we're trying to keep. No, there is one God, and he has one law, and all we have to do is worship him and obey him. And that brings unity and harmony to our lives. David says in Psalm 86, verses 10 and 11, You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. And since there's only one God, we should center all our lives upon him. Moses says in Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one Lord. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. You see how those two parts are connected? If there was more than one God, you couldn't give your whole heart to one or the other. You'd be divided. And that's why people are so broken into pieces today. They're chasing after all these different gods. But the Bible says, no, no, no. No, you, you, you only have to worship one God. But you know what that means. If there's only one God, he demands all of you. It's not enough for you to give him just a piece of your heart. Because if you do, then what you're saying to him essentially is, you're not the only God. 
I'm sorry, but there are other lords in my life that I need to give the rest of my heart to. But he says, no, you must give me all of yourself because I am the one, the only, the God who created heaven and earth. And therefore, dear friends, when, when we are called to devote ourselves entirely to God, it's not some kind of a cult or some twisted fundamentalism or something like that. It's just a simple implication of this most basic truth that we believe, that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's only one God, and therefore you must live in all things for him. The third practical lesson that we draw from this verse is this. The universe is not God, and all things are not one. The universe is not God, and all things are not one. I was thinking about this the other day, and the Lord helped me to see that throughout Genesis 1, there are all these distinctions being made. There are all these lines being drawn. It starts with the most basic distinction of all when he says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So here's a line that's being drawn, and on one side is God, and on the other side is the universe. And the universe is not God, and God is not the universe. Creator, creature. If we don't get that right, we get nothing right. I remember seeing a, a poster in a friend's dorm room back when I was in college. And it said this, two basic truths that you need to know for life. Number one, there is a God. Number two, you're not him. But we live in a world today that is increasingly dominated by the idea that the universe is God. Now, that can take different forms. That can take the form of materialism, the belief that all that exists is the, the matter, the physical stuff of the universe. That's typically an atheistic idea. But really, what it ends up doing is it ends up turning the universe into God, and we worship and serve the universe. And all things are just basically different arrangements of atoms. That's all that we are. But there's also pantheism. Pantheism. Pantheism means all is God. Pantheism is the point of view of the religion of Hinduism. Now, earlier, I talked about Hinduism as a religion of many gods, and that's true. But Hinduism as a religion, when you get a little bit deeper into it, you realize that even though they have all these different gods, and they have millions of gods in Hinduism, all these gods, they believe, are just different expressions of the one divine reality. In fact, they would say that everything that exists is part of and an expression of one divine reality. Angels, demons, plants, animals, even good and evil, are just all parts of God. And everything is one. 
And therefore, all the distinctions that we make between these different things are ultimately illusions. I think that I'm a distinct individual person, but that's not actually true. I'm just a temporary manifestation of part of God, and so are you. Similarly, we find in Buddhism a view that could be called panentheism. Forgive me again for the isms. But panentheism is the idea that everything is united by a common spirit. That in all life, in all universe, there is a kind of force that fills all things. And my spirit is actually just a piece of that great soul or spirit. I use the word force very intentionally. Because this is the worldview that you find presented in the Star Wars movies. And it is actually kind of a, a strange mixture of Buddhism and Taoism. And so once again, we have this idea that everything is basically one. All things are just different appearances of the one ultimate reality. And if that's true... Well, that means that my obligation towards God, and my obligation towards human beings, and my obligation towards mice, and my obligation towards trees, and my obligation towards dirt are all basically the same obligation. You see? These things are not fundamentally different. They're all one. And so then what is right and what is wrong is ultimately about the big one circle of life that we're all part of. And we must regard the monkey and the cow as our brother and our sister. Indeed, we must regard them as divine beings, because God is in them just as God is in us. And we see this very thing in forms of the environmental movement. We have a legitimate responsibility, the Bible teaches us, to take care of the earth and be good stewards of it. But what has happened is that by viewing all things as one, we've twisted that responsibility into worshiping the earth and, frankly, sacrificing the well-being of human beings for the sake of animals and trees and even dirt. Every god requires its sacrifices, and if we turn environmentalism into the goddess of Mother Nature and worship her, dear friends, she will require her sacrifices too. And we see this even today. But in Genesis chapter 1, we discover a very different point of view. We discover that God not only distinguishes himself from the world that he made, but that as he moves through the process of creating the world in six days, a lot of what he's doing is he's making distinctions. I won't read the whole chapter to you, but you can see that in verses 3, 4, and 5, he makes a distinction between light and darkness, day and night. In verses 6, 7, and 8, he makes a distinction between the waters that are above the earth and above the um, yeah, above this, the firmament or the expanse, which probably refers to the water and the clouds above us, 
and the waters that are under the earth, the seas and the oceans, the rivers and the aquifers. And then in verses 9 and 10, he makes distinctions. He divides the dry land from the seas. In verse 11 and onwards, he creates the plants, each according to its kind. And then in verses 14 and onward, he creates the stars. And then in verses 20 and following, he makes the birds and the fish. Verses 24 and onward, he makes the animals upon the earth. And then lastly, as the crown of creation, he makes human beings in his image. And all of these things are different. Dear friends, part of what Genesis 1 is teaching us is that as we bow before God as the creator, we have to acknowledge and respect the distinctions that he has instituted in his world. We may not view human beings as the same as animals. Why? Because God distinguishes them. And in fact, we even find in Genesis 1.27, it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So while recognizing that both men and women are created in God's image, and therefore are both fully human, and have full human dignity and value, they're not the same. Male and female. This is part of the order that God has instituted in his created world. And a biblical worldview, a biblical ethical system, a biblical approach to right and wrong has to start by recognizing that God has divided and distinguished things. Now, dear friends, Our society views that as evil. If you've been raised in the church and you've been taught this stuff all your life, you might think this is just common sense. I got this in the second grade in Sunday school, and I hope you did. But you need to understand that the world that we live in now is dominated by a pantheistic or panentheistic point of view. It believes that all things are one, and therefore distinctions are evil and harmful, it says to us. Now, you should see this in Hinduism. The Hindu scriptures say, a person who considers all living creatures equal to his own self is the seer. In other words, like he's a prophet. He's got insight into reality. So, in the, let's make this practical. A human being who considers squirrels equal to his own self is the seer. That is what people believe. They believe that there is nothing distinctively special about human beings. Why is that? It is because they believe that all things are one. We share one life, one spirit, and we're all divine. And therefore, we must honor all these things. Today, we find that there is a fierce hostility against all what they call binaries. Male, female. 
or animal and human. All these distinctions, they say, have to be dissolved. Instead, we should view everything as one whole system that is progressing over time to higher and higher levels. Dear friends, you've got to understand that the theory of evolution is not based in science. It's based in pantheism. It's based in the belief that all things are one. We're just animals, they say to us, that are perhaps a little bit more developed. And as a result, it twists what God says. Listen to something that Herman Bovink wrote. Herman Bovink wrote about a hundred years ago, okay? This stuff has been a long time coming. He said this, It is precisely the fundamental error of pantheism that wipes out all boundaries, relativizes all oppositions, and reduces the distinction between sin and holiness, God and the devil, to a difference of degree only. That's why Bavink said this is a system from the abyss. Listen, folks, if all that we are is the result of natural forces operative in rearranging atoms and molecules over billions of years, there is no fundamental difference between right and wrong. So why should we be surprised then why should we be surprised when people begin to act like animals and treat each other as animals and slaughter one another as if they were just beasts to be killed when we have taught them that they are just beasts to be killed and all is one? Why should we be surprised when we find People making statements about homosexuality and transgenderism as if these things are good and natural and as if the whole idea of a man versus a woman as a fixed category that defines our sexuality, that whole concept we're being told is evil and it's wrong and destructive and it hurts people. Should we be surprised when we've come to recognize that our society believes that all is one and there are no distinctions? And how does this come about? It comes about, dear friends, exactly the way that Paul describes in Romans chapter 1. It starts with the rejection of the Creator. It says in Romans 1.25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And what proceeds from that is a kind of chain reaction as God then judges the world but with invisible spiritual judgments. People sometimes um, might say, do you think that God is going to judge our nation soon? Folks, it's happening right now. Listen to what Paul says. 
He says in verse 24 of Romans 1, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. In verses 26 to 27, it talks about how men and women abandoned natural relations and embraced those contrary to nature. It says men gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another because God gave them over to that. You see, God says, all right, if you're going to abandon me as the creator, and instead you are going to worship and serve the creature, I'm going to give you over to what you have chosen. And the whole thing begins to dissolve. All the distinctions that God created in this world, distinctions that were made for our good, begin to fall apart. And as a result... It leads, as Paul says in Romans 1, 28 to 31, to all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. The result is that people are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. Paul says they become gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. See, folks, if that, if that seawall of the creator-creature distinction, that, that great strong wall that, that protects us from total chaos and destruction, if that gets torn down, there's nothing left to stop the waves coming in and just wiping everything else out. And yet, in their minds, in their minds, it all seems to make sense to them because they have come to believe that all things are one. So, the house is cracking. Windows are breaking. Rain is starting to come in. What do we do? What do we do? Well, it's not enough, folks, for us to put in a new window pane or to plaster over the crack a little bit. It's just going to come back. We have to go back to the foundation. We have to start, as Christians, by completely convincing ourselves in our minds of these most basic of truths, that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, that he's the only God that the universe is not God, that we're not part of some great circle of life where all things are one. Instead, we live in God's world. We abide by the created order that he put in place. And people can smash themselves against it till the day is done, but those things will not change. Men will remain men. Women will remain women. And if we ignore these things, we do so not to the destruction of God's order, but simply to the destruction of ourselves. And as we talk to people, as we witness to them, we need to realize that it's no longer enough to assume that you can talk to someone out on the streets and think that they have the same basic idea about God and human beings that you do. You need to understand that if you talk to them about God, they're just as likely to think of God as some kind of universal life force. 
as they are to think of him as the creator of heaven and earth. Evangelism. Evangelism, dear friends, in a pagan world, which is where we live today, evangelism must begin with creation. Now, there is one more point that I want to draw from this, and it's a very important point. Because what we have painted here is a very dark picture. And we live in a dark world today. But dear friends, the fourth and last practical application I want to draw from Genesis 1-1 is this. God has a purpose, and we can have hope. God has a purpose, and we can have hope. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What does that mean? Well, one thing it tells us that this is not a big accident. And it's not a runaway train. God made the world with a plan. You can see it as you continue to read through Genesis 1. Everything is unfolding in an orderly way. He's preparing this part of the world and that part of the world. And finally, when it's already just the perfect world for man to live in, he creates man. God is operating according to a purpose and a plan for this world. Furthermore, Genesis 1 reveals that God is a God of sovereign power. He's not struggling with the world. In Genesis 1, he doesn't even break a sweat. He just says, let it be, and it is. Now, dear friends, this is a message of tremendous hope for us. If the world was created by this God of a wise plan and purpose, who has sovereign power, then we can believe that this world will be brought back to the purpose for which God made it. God is even now executing his plan so that he will be glorified in his justice against the wicked, but in his grace to his elect people. God, the creator, is still God, and he's still the only God. And therefore, he will fulfill his purpose. We can be people with hope. God wins. And dear friends, I, I would submit to you that to be a person with real, solid hope is one of the most radical and revolutionary things you can do in this world. Because we live in a world without hope. We shouldn't be surprised by this. Paul says in Ephesians 2.12 that those who are without God have no hope. He speaks in 1 Thessalonians 4 of the Gentiles who do not know God. And later he says they have no hope. Let's just think about it. If atheism is true, then you and I are just tiny little pieces in a grand machine that doesn't even know that we're there. Our lives are just like little sparks of fire that are quickly and permanently extinguished. And then you're gone. You exist no more. Or according to Hinduism, we are just temporary manifestations of the one that includes all. 
And one day we're destined just to be reabsorbed back into the one. Like a drop of water that exists for a little time and then returns to the sea and is gone. According to Buddhism, you know, the great hope of Buddhism is to escape the cycle of suffering and pain through nirvana. Do you know what nirvana means? You ever taken a candle and gone and blown it out? That's nirvana. Because the hope, supposedly, the supposed hope of Buddhism is that our suffering will end when we come to face the illusion of our individual existence. And we come to realize that we really don't exist as an individual person. We are just a temporary manifestation of the one Buddha spirit in all things. This is the hope. The hope that one day your suffering will end because you will end. Is it any wonder, dear friends, that the people in this world, convinced in many cases of the fact that all things are one and we are all part of God, that these people have no real hope? Their only hope is to grab a little bit of pleasure in this life before it's all done and game over. But dear friends, the Holy Scriptures offer a real and substantial hope. And we find that hope in Jesus Christ. You know, Genesis 1.1 has a counterpart in the New Testament. There is an in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. But in John chapter 1, we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. John 1, verses 1 through 3. And this person who, who is called the Word, who on the one hand is with God, because he dis, he's a distinct person from the Father, but he's also said to be God because he is himself God the sharer in the Father's divine essence with the Holy Spirit, this person, John says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Dear friends, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the Creator came. Sovereign, all-powerful, all-wise God entered into this world of brutality and immorality and evil and pain. And he came full of grace and truth. And therefore, dear friends, if we believe in Genesis 1-1, we believe that there is hope. Because we believe that the Creator became a child, and the child became a man, and the man died on the cross for our sins. And he rose again from the dead, and he is coming back. And because he is the Creator, we believe that he will bring one day a new heavens and a new earth. 
2 Peter 3.13, according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. How can we have such a hope? How can we believe in such a crazy, mixed-up world that one day the heavens and the earth will be made new and will be purified of all evil? Dear friends, it begins with believing that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Amen. Let's pray.